Welcome to Women in B2B Marketing, a show where CMOs, VPs of marketing, and all strong women leaders in B2B discuss their top tactics, strategies, and tips for building high-performing teams, leveraging trends, and ultimately rocking their marketing careers. Made by and for women, insightful for all. I'm your host and 15-year B2B marketer, Jane Sarah. Let's dive in. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for another episode of Women in B2B Marketing. Today, I am delighted to have with us Deidre Hudson, who is, amongst many things, she is the head of revenue marketing at Bloomfire. She's also been in B2B marketing for over 20 years, so there's tons to learn from her, and she's a frequent speaker and workshop leader, so pumped to learn all we can from her today about B2B marketing, revenue marketing, demand gen, all things marketing. Welcome, Deidre. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I love talking about marketing. And so I'm uh, just great to have this opportunity to, to continue talking about things that I love. Thank you for joining. I'm curious if you could tell us about your path into the world of B2B marketing, because as our friend Dave Gerhardt always says, no one goes to school for B2B marketing, right? So right. how did you come into this path and how has your path led you here today? My path was a little bit of a twisted one because I, in undergrad, I actually wanted to be an accountant. So I was working uh-huh. in the membership department of a human rights organization, putting myself undergrad, and we were doing lots of direct mail. We were doing lots of, you know, kind of segmentation and lots of demographic and psychographic targeting. And I fell in love with marketing because as we were doing all this analysis and, and segmentation, I discovered that one row of numbers in an Excel spreadsheet could indicate an entirely different kind of person than the second row. So I became fascinated with just looking at how do we segment different groups of people? How do we figure out how to talk to them? How do we figure out how to message the same product or service, but differently because of their demographic and psychographics? Yeah, I switched my major to marketing. And from then I spent a little time in consumer marketing But I found consumer marketing B2C to be just, it was too big. It was like too unwieldy. And there were so many different pathways that could take place. And uh, I'm kind of impatient and I I need some sort of immediate gratification. So I kind of fell into B2B marketing and I found a home there. Yeah. It's so interesting because even just the way you were describing the data sets and segmentation, you can tell like your accounting background and analytical aspect probably makes you such a stellar marketer to have that mindset brought in. Yeah, I really love it. And I'm actually, I'm returning to school um, at the end of the year in December, actually to work on the master's in psychology because uh, I'm just fascinated by just human behavior, motivations and drivers and how do we just understand and and kind of, I don't want to say use that because it sounds too, you know, opportunistic, but how do we, yeah, how do we use that to help get the right message to the right people? Yeah. Because it's about finding a fit. It's so funny how perspective can really change, right? With marketing. Because some people have the perspective like, oh, marketing evil. You're like pushing things on people. But if you market the right way, it's just about connecting people with what they need or what they want. It's not pushing anything on anyone. So yeah, making sure you make those connections. This is making me think, I saw a lot on your LinkedIn profile that you speak about the art and science of marketing. So this balance, like your accounting kind of background and initial foray back into marketing and now wanting to get psychology just kind of brings full circle 
uh, like the art and science piece. Yeah. If you can talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on how marketing is a mix of the two worlds. Yeah. And, you know, that's something I could spend all day doing because you do need the data analytics piece. You do need to be able to look at a data set, decipher it and kind of pull out from it. What does it mean? Right. What is the data kind of saying to me? I remember I started it when I was working in publishing and I spent like, I think like the first two weeks just immersed in the data, just to understand it, understand the nuances, what it was saying, what insights we could pull out of it. And then this is where the art part comes in is that you can't get stuck in analysis paralysis, right? You have to be able to pull out the insights and then be able to interpret them and use them in creative ways that's going to help you connect with your audience. One of the things yeah. that I think, and we can probably talk about this a little bit later, but one of the things that I think is kind of a double-edged sword, what's really happening in marketing lately is that we are really trying to measure everything. And yes. you just can't. You just can't. That's part of the art of, of marketing is that some things you are going by instinct and you are going by your gut. And it's a gut mm -hmm. that, you know, if you've been in marketing for a while that you've earned, <laughs> basically, exactly. right? Exactly. So, <laughs> yes, you've carved this gut to be exactly where it is. Today. Right, right. <laughs> That's so true. It's interesting because you say you, you can't measure everything. I completely agree. And it, it becomes exhausting. I find, I think I've, I've heard recently about more and more marketers who are just considering leaving marketing altogether because the attribution overload and overwhelm is just too much. And the need for accountability, especially 2023, it's just been a draining one for many marketers. Like we're doing, we have that gut instinct that we've earned with pride. And we also have the, the tried and true tactics that have always worked or that we've molded to work and they're not working in many ways, right? So having to measure and track everything, especially in a down economy, has just led to such burnout, I think, with a lot of marketers. Yeah, I was just on a call earlier today, and there's a real need for like a support group for marketers, yeah. for like therapy, therapy for marketers. Yes. <laughs> so I may pursue that it's when true. I'm done with my psychology degree, but... But oh, yeah. great idea. For exactly That's those such reasons. a good idea. <laughs> there was just this week, there was a LinkedIn thread. Alina, the co-founder of Chili Piper, yeah. had this whole thing that was talking about how everyone needs to give their CMO or their, their marketing folks a hug because it's been such a trying year. And <laughs> yeah. it was this whole thing and it turned into everyone saying, this is like marketing therapy in the threads, just these comments and kind yeah. of virtual hugs. You should yeah. check it out and... Yes, we need you as a marketing therapist. So do it. I'm full support. <laughs> I'll be your first patient. <laughs> so That's funny. Awesome. Like there's so much we could deal with. I want to jump into this a little bit more and then go to go to market, which is another strength of yours. What do we not have to measure? Like, what do you feel confident speaking to the board or founder, or your boss about not having to measure and you have the strong support of why you don't have to measure that? To my board, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but conceptually, we started, I have this as part of something to talk about a little bit later, but yeah. we know that the customer journey has long stopped being linear, right? We got different graphical representations of it. I did a graphical representation some years ago of kind of a, a, an upside down treble clef, 
right? Because people are kind of coming in and out, they're going dark, they're coming back. Yeah. So knowing that and knowing that it is difficult if you don't have the right tools in place and and you know, that's a hell of a tech stack, right? For you to be able to measure like every particular point on that journey. Yeah. Some part of that you have to, common sense has to kick in and say, okay, if they're coming to our site, for instance, by direct, right? And we're looking at lead source attribution and coming by direct. They have to have heard about us some way, somehow, right? So there are some things that we just can't measure. One of the things that we started doing was really looking at our LinkedIn. And we started using the tool that was able to show us some companies that were viewing our LinkedIn ads. These are just viewing, right? Because we're not going to see all this level of detail actually in LinkedIn. And yeah. what that led to was that we saw that we had a really promising RFP opportunity come to us. And if you just look at the data, just what you have on its own, it's like they came to our site from direct. We have no idea how they heard about us or whatever. And they invited us to this RFP that could be very lucrative. But then by looking at the other platform, we could see that they had been viewing our LinkedIn ads for like three months prior to yes. coming to the site. So you can't measure everything, but you have to, like I said, at some point, common sense has to kick in and you have to just know and trust that some of the things that you're doing are working. This concept of mm -hmm. digital surround sound, being in different places where your target audience is and trusting that they're going to see the message, even if you can't directly yes. measure it one-to-one. -one. So true. I remember in a past company, we weren't seeing results come from one of our paid social campaigns, direct results, and we turned it off and instantly our direct traffic dropped the following yes. month. And I was like, yes. this is why we have these, I think it was Facebook ads at the time. So yeah. it, it's so true. But if you look back and connect the dots, it's great that you were able to do that and tie that to your, your LinkedIn campaign. That's yeah, amazing. it's great that we had the ability to measure that because I had the same experience with the previous companies, exactly where you're talking about. If you cut off the the social, right? You don't when you're looking at your attribution, you're not seeing a single freaking lead come in from social, <laughs> right? But then you cut it off. <laughs> yeah. And your direct falls. So yeah, I've had that same experience also. I mean direct. It's where all like lead tracking goes to die, right? It's just <laughs> the bane of right. our existence. It's where everything miscellaneous gets jumbled right, into. Right. <laughs> well, I know that you recently spoke at an event about GTM, go to market, and scaling businesses from one million to ten million, I believe it was. Could you share a few tidbits from that? I think it was a panel talk that you shared or that you learned from that panel, if you could share that with our audience, because I know a ton of people are trying to do that right now. Yeah, I think a couple of big takeaways that came from that was, number one, really understanding the difference between growth and scaling, right? Because you can have growth mm -hmm. and you can have growth at all costs and other similarly stupid ideas, but... <laughs> There's a difference between being able to grow and being able to scale. And scale is when you want to increase your revenue without substantially increasing your costs. So I have this kind of five-stage graphic that kind of shows the five stages to revenue marketing. And one of those stages is where you are focused on where scaling is your important thing to do. And you are really focused on efficiency. So for instance, if you're driving yeah. a lot of activity or have a great investment in Google ads, right? You need to make sure that your Google ad campaign is operating efficiently before you start pouring more money onto it, right? So this idea of how do we scale is how do we make use of the channels that we have 
mm-hmm. as efficiently as possible. And then we can decide if we want to invest more in those channels or expand into other channels. But it just can't be, you know, you're just going to continue throwing money at it. You have to be focused on things like, you know, what's my CPA? And mm-hmm. kind of an outgrowth of that is, and I'm really excited to hear people talking about this in this way, is the bow tie, right? We've got the funnel, yes. we've got the whatever. So I'm yes. really gravitating to the concept of the bow tie. In my previous companies, I had talked before about the importance, like the full funnel, right? From marketing to sales to product to CS, because all those things tie together and they can leverage each other. The things that we were learning about how customers were using the product, for instance, that we were getting those insights from CS, we were starting to pull those insights into the top of funnel messaging, because these are things that were already being used, things that people were happy about. Some of the things that they were talking about were things that we hadn't even anticipated from a product uses perspective, right? And we also mm-hmm. were able to see those objections and what are people objecting to so we could take that to the top of funnel and arm our salespeople with, okay, these may be objections that you are encountering. We could even create some proactive uh, messaging around that. So I'm really excited about the idea of the bow tie. Now it's one of the things that came out and how important it is to tie your sales and your marketing and your product team together. At one of my previous company, and this is what from the panel too, we even had a shared OKR because I told our head of product and our head of sales at the time that we were doing our OKR planning that, hey, we should have one OKR in common. So how did that go with the shared OKR? How did you decide on narrowing it down to a certain subset that you all aligned on? I think that we aligned around, I forgot exactly what the OKR was, but it took some time. It wasn't easy to do right away. And that's when yeah. we decided to just do one. Let's not try to, you know, boil the ocean. I think it's a, a worthwhile exercise. And it yeah. forced us to, I think it fosters more collaboration and less competition. And it forced mm. us at that time to check in with and support each other on achieving that goal. Yeah. I love that idea of everybody kind of sitting down virtually or in person and just aligning on, okay, what are our core goals this year? Everyone brings whatever their five or so top goals are for each department. And then, I mean, I'm making up how this went, but this is kind of how I envision it. And you just kind of align and drill it down to one shared OKR. That's a really great idea. Yeah. I mean, we had our individual group OKRs. So we still had like three or four marketing OKRs, but one of those, one of our marketing OKRs is going to be the same as product and the same as sales. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Is there anything else? So I think collaboration amongst the teams is bow tie model, which I, I can link to in show notes. I know winning by design talks about this a lot, right? Curious if there anything else from this panel that you were on that just helps scale. I love also that differentiation between growth and scaling. That's really good point to point out. But yeah, anything else that you you gathered from that panel that's important to share and take away? It feels like it was so long ago. So those are the things that, that stick out for me. Yeah. One of the organizers, Ashley, she's a great person to know. She has a post on LinkedIn and I, I believe that she gave a recap of a couple of things. So if I'm missing oh, okay. anything, then... Cool. I can link to that in show notes too. Awesome. Okay. And let's talk demand gen and revenue marketing. So I think these are terms that get thrown around a lot. And for the most part, we all get what they are, but I think everyone has their own 
definitions of these and how they apply them in titles, et cetera. I'm curious your take on demand gen and revenue marketing. Yeah, I, I like this question because, you know, there's always kind of the, the new catchphrase, right? In demand gen, we're talking now about a model of demand creation, capture, and conversion, which I think is great because I think it provides more granularity into demand gen. But at the end of the day, I mean, demand gen and revenue marketing, they're pretty similar. It really is about how much revenue are you generating? I think when we were talking about just demand gen, you were able to kind of get away with not talking about, without attaching revenue as a metric. And when you mm -hmm. add that, you use the label revenue marketing, you're expected to attach revenue to your metrics. It's not just about leads and conversions and things like that. Mm -hmm. It really is about revenue. Now, enterprise sales situation, where you've got a long sales cycle, that can be tricky. That can be, you know, very tricky to do, especially if you're talking about a sales cycle that's like, you know, six to nine, even 18 months. It's hard to say, OK, yeah, in January, the things that I'm doing in January is going to attach to revenue that we're not going to see or, you know, even book until next year. Right. So, yeah, first of all, you have to be able to talk about the things that you're doing now that's demonstrating that you're doing the right things that will lead to revenue. And you have to be in an environment where that's okay, where it's yeah. okay that, I know you can't tell me right now how much revenue you're gonna generate, but are you doing the right things that's gonna lead to that revenue generation? So it's kind of a, yeah, kind of what we talked about earlier about measuring everything. So it really is a combination of being able to show those things and being in the right environment where it's okay to do that. Are there any early indicators that you keep an eye out for that something is working and you see that success and you want to keep it going, even if you can't directly tie revenue back to it quite yet? Yes. Yeah, so enterprise sales and especially B2B SaaS enterprise sales, you know, we look at demo requests, you know, how many people are coming to the site and requesting demo. We just recently updated our website. So we have about five different things that people can do. And we're measuring yeah. the impact of each of those activities. So is this a high value activity or is it kind of a mid value or low value activity that will lead to a demo request? So those are some of the things that we're doing. And then I think also it's important to understand the role if you're using a multi-channel strategy, which I hope everyone is, but if you're using a multi-channel mm -hmm. strategy, understand the role of each of those channels, right? So is the role of LinkedIn to create a demo request or is the role of LinkedIn to create awareness about the brand or maybe a website visit, you know, or to spark interest, yeah. right? So because yeah. if you're measuring LinkedIn, for instance, in terms of is it generating demo requests, it's going to look as a failure. But yes. if you look at it for what its role is, then that changes the perspective. So I think it's important to be able to do that. It's such a good point. I think the default for all marketers, especially now when we're just kind of grabbing for conversions and leads of all kinds, we just want to tie every channel back to end result, right? Bottom of the funnel, whatever that conversion is for us. Right. And you're right. It's, it's these micro conversions along the way. So yes. this is bringing traffic to the site, which we can then retarget. And then we want them to subscribe to something and we can nurture them. So baby steps are still wins and part of this funnel, even Absolutely. though we're, we're so focused on this. 
this end goal all the time. Right. Someone mentioned I was at a GTA Roadshow and I just talked to her the day. She mentioned the the sash shakedown where it's like, yeah, <laughs> it's constantly just okay. Are you ready to buy? Are you ready to buy? Are you ready to buy? That's like, oh, no, I'm not. So true. But that's not a failure. Especially now, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> it's funny because right now everybody's just shrinking their tech stack, right? I mean, when budgets are cut, it's like, okay, what can I consolidate and make do with with my tools that have smaller, lighter versions of these better tools that I have and everyone's scaling back. So are you ready to buy? Are you ready to buy? The answer is no across the board oh, right now. Right, I'm not. <laughs> but that's the, that's part of the problem, right? Because we're scaling back on the tech stack, which is which is what gives us more insight into yes. these micro conversions, but we're still being asked to demonstrate the, the larger conversion. So it, it's a bit tricky right now. Yeah, it is back and forth. I saw on your, your company stand, Bloomfire, I think there was a CTA that was something about showing instant revenue, like ROI, instant ROI of yeah. investing with you guys. Is that a new CTA? Cause I, I love it because it automatically shows that impact, right? And that value that you bring to the company and how long it will take to get there. Curious if you can talk about that CTA. Yeah, I think that in B2B SaaS, ROI calculators they are or should be a pretty standard part of the set, right? Because mm -hmm. especially if you're talking about five-figure platform, you need to be able to demonstrate the ROI of that. And the more tools as a B2B marketer that we can give our audience to help create that case, then the better. We also have another one, yeah. I believe, our um, marketer that's running the website, Brian, he has one that's called Build a Business Case. And then there's like a business case toolkit. And so cool. all those things are part of what, you know, what we were talking about earlier, which is the micro conversions. And they're important. They're important. Yeah. We had ROI calculator on our previous, on the older version of our site, the previous version of our site, but we didn't highlight it as much as a CTA. But I've done ROI calculators at previous companies where we were trying to show probably a couple of companies ago. But yeah, that should be part of a standard B2B SaaS platform. Yeah. I'm curious. So that's definitely something that works right now is showing ROI because that's top of mind for everybody is what can we expect in return for this investment? Is there anything else that you're seeing working in 2023? It could be a channel or a way of thinking, anything at all. I think that everything old is new again. And I believe yeah. that the world is cyclical, right? So I think that as we continue to talk about AI and how we're going to continue to leverage technology, the flip side of that is going to be this greater emphasis on kind of human-centric tactics, right? We mm. saw after the pandemic, there was this resurgence of in-person events and the growth in, you know, things like peer-to-peer -peer and networks and CLG. So yeah. I think that that's going to continue and that's something that the smart companies will continue to focus on. But again, some of that stuff is not so easily measurable, right? You can go to a dinner and your sales team is going to want the list so they can start calling them, but that's the wrong yeah. fucking thing to do. Pardon yeah, my French, right? It is. It so, is. <laughs> so it's kind of, a, again, a double-edged sword. Um, you know, yeah. what's working now? What do we say is going to work later? And basically 
do we have the the hooks but to invest in things that we may not see a one-to-one attribution return on investment for today yeah is there anything that comes to mind when you say that of something that you think you feel strongly of that is worth the investment but you're not going to see the roi instantly and it will take time but you're excited about yeah, I think this I this concept of education, like educating your target audience. I think that that is something that is important, and yeah. it should be looked at as part of your journey, part of the tasks that you strategy that you employ. Yeah, in today's environment, well, with AI too, this is way magnified, but. The amount of content that exists out there, and I know everybody, like we want to educate to engage, right, and show value to our audience, whatever that is. But then how do we stand out when there's so much noise out there now with programmatic SEO and AI and just content being turned out nonstop? How do we make sure where we are bringing that value and not just noise? That's where segmentation and knowing your audience comes in. Mm-hmm there was an agency that ran ads and I think that I actually spoke with them this year, but they ran ads as much as like maybe a year and a half ago that I've never forgotten. And it was just a black and white ad. And it said, it's hard out here for a CMO. And I freaking love that. I kept that yeah. in the back of my mind for like two years. You know, I, I kind of refer to it as like dog whistle marketing, right? It's like, if you know your audience and you're going to say stuff and put out a message or put out content, package content in a way that it resonates on such a high yeah. level with your audience that it just hones right in. And everyone else, it's white noise and, and that's okay. But that's where, yeah. you know, being able to prioritize and to focus, I think is one of the things that is really important. Yeah, I love that. When you can get that clear message that resonates with you and sticks with you because you just know your audience right? it's going to hit them. Right. I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, but I wonder if because there's so much noise now and some of it is, most of it is not great quality, maybe it'll be easier to stand out because (laughs) if you provide that quality and all the rest is just kind of junk, maybe it'll be easier for us to stand out if we truly focus on knowing our audience, like you're saying. Yeah. And again, knowing those channels too, because we're developing a set of uh, new ads now for LinkedIn. And one of the things that I've just been trying to be very crystal clear about is that while we want to stay within our brand guardrails, the goal and the job of these LinkedIn ads is to be a scroll stopper. So I don't want something yeah. that's just like, you know, that's got all the right colors and it looks good <laughs> and it fits within the brand, but it's a snore, yes. right? It's a big snooze, yes. right? <laughs> yes. I've seen some, exactly. and I'm seeing on LinkedIn some really creative things. I saw a meme using the guy from Matrix. And I forgot, I think it was about leads or something. And that kind of stood out for me at the time. And yeah. So, you know, but again, what's the job of that channel? The only job of that channel was to get me to stop scrolling and to yeah. pay attention to that. And then we'll get to the next conversion potentially in that journey. I love that. That's one thing to marketing millennials, another podcast turned community that massively blew up. They started out getting attention from just creating marketing memes. And because you don't see that often on LinkedIn, like you just kind of see everyone's posts from events and like long form content. And so when they saw a meme, it just instantly you yeah. see, it gets your attention. Right, right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. 
Well, speaking of audience, there's something you post on LinkedIn that I loved and I want to dive into. So Tams are bullshit. (laughs) Can you explain? (laughs) I knew you would ask me about that one. (laughs) I love it. I saw that that was a scroll stopper for me. Like I saw that I was like, yes, I already agree, but why? And like, (laughs) yeah, so that was, uh, that was a bit of a controversial statement, but so, so here's what I mean. Yeah. When we talk about tabs, that number is just so damn big it's almost impossible to wrap your arms around right so it's like the tam is saying okay this is my revenue opportunity at 100 percent market share with no competition when does that freaking happen (laughs) yeah Yeah. what am i supposed to do with that i don't know yeah (laughs) so i think that now sam's right that's supposed to be that's an attempt to make it i think more manageable and attainable and it's saying okay this is who every point i could possibly market to um they're saying okay here's who i could actually yeah. serve yeah but to me that's still too wide and still too undefined so i introduced this concept of the iam the immediate addressable market Love and that. this is the portion of your market that's exhibiting some level of intent signals, which is where you should prioritize your focus, right? Now, people will say, well, only 2% of your market is ever in the buying cycle or or what have you. And I'm not saying not educate, but the ones who are exhibiting intent signals where you should focus your your priority. And Mm -hmm. this is where the art and science of marketing comes in because you need to be creative about what is an intent signal. I worked at a previous company years ago that was doing data governance before data governance was a thing. So one of the intent signals that I used to develop a a call list for my sales team was which companies actually have a data governance job post open, like these open roles on Indeed or whatever, because if they have that role open, they know what data governance is, right? So they may Mm -hmm. not be exhibiting other signals, but that's an intent signal. Mm. What else are people doing? You can use, you know, sources like ZoomInfo for searching and Sixth Sense for people who are exhibiting searching signals. But you get to be really creative about what is an intent signal. And I guarantee you that when you take it from that perspective and then you look at your population of people who are exhibiting intent signals and what portion of those that you have in your in your CRM. And then you get that delta, right? That's your true I am, right? Those are the people that you really should be prioritizing your focus on because they are sending, they're saying in some way, shape or form, hey, I have an interest in, in, in your service or your product or your category. Yeah. It's funny. You say intent signals and I instantly, because of where we are now with tech, right? And I think tech stack and I sixth sense and intent signals now in Apollo, right? Like these actual signals you buy and who's in market based on search signals. But you just unlocked a really great point. There are intent signals that we can look at old school. Like we don't need this technology always to, it's another layer to have, but we should also look at what are intent signals for our audience? What can we be looking at? So that's a really good, I just had like an epiphany and what I can be looking at for my company for intent signals. Deidre, I feel like this is a book. I feel like Tams Are Bullshit is going to be a bestseller by you. I'm putting it out there into the universe. 
And then (laughs) I am is what the book will actually be about. And all these details of focusing and on the intent signals and what to look at. This is a book. I love that. I love that. I love (laughs) controversial titles. I put out a small book on Amazon called How the Fuck Did I Get Here? And uh, I'm working on another one called I Married My Mother. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Can you tell us about these books? I'd love to learn more. Well, the how the fuck did I get here? It was basically I had this this come to Jesus moment and it was just like, how did I get here? I I don't know what's going on. You know, just a lot of personal things like, you know, my marriage and, you know, family. And on, on the outside, it looked great, but I was just so empty and I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't figure out why. So I did a lot of, you know, reflection. I went to, into therapy and I came up with these three reasons of basically how I got there and how I could get out of that. So I talk about those mm. three reasons in the book. And then the other one that I'm working on, I'm still playing with the title, but basically it's called Something like I married my mother, uh, my journey about dealing with narcissists or something like that. I'm trying to work on the title. (laughs) I can relate with that. (laughs) I I need to go like that goes and downloads these two books on Amazon. (laughs) I'll link my mother. Yeah, you can link to that. How the fuck did I get here? But I married my mother is, is not ready yet. I'm still working on that. Cool. Yeah, I and then the that. third yeah. will be Tams are bullshit. bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. How do you find the process? Because I, I find this so fascinating and I love that you're creating and you're creating these. It, it must be twofold, right? One is that it's so, I'm assuming it's therapeutic to go through this process, right? And get it to paper and then share it. And then second, like you're helping other people with what you went through to kind of coach them through the same thing. So and third around all of this, just the fact that you are putting yourself out there is just kudos because it it takes a lot to get to that step to just be like, fuck it. I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to do this and get it out. So yeah. Tell us how the process went for realizing you wanted to put this out in the world. Well, years of therapy. <laughs> yeah. And that goes to kind of what we were talking about earlier about being a therapist for marketers. So years of yeah. therapy, <laughs> you know, just reflecting on what would I have needed at that point when I was going through what the things that I was going through in my professional and personal life, what is it that I would have needed? And um, I'm very much like, I have this problem. I need to solve it, right? If this is my yeah. problem. I've defined yes. it and I need to solve it, right? So what I found was that there was a lot of stuff out there and I would kind of come across nuggets of what I needed in looking for pro- solutions to other problems. But I yes. almost wanted kind of a dictionary and this something else I'm working on as a podcast, which I'm going to ask you to be on too. It'll be about turning your pain into power. (laughs) All in. (laughs) But I wanted something that was just very specific. When I came up with the title for How the Fuck Did I Get Here? You know, it was just like, I heard other people kind of echoing that sentiment of, okay, I'm over 40, I'm over 50, whatever. And I take a look at my life and I I just, I don't know where it went. I I don't know what happened. Yes. So it was therapeutic for me and it was my attempt to to kind of help other people as as well. So I love that. And now that I'm noticing, I see it in the background there for once we get this on YouTube. I love it. I'm so excited to read this. Amazing. It's it's a short read. It's a very short read. It's just um, 
there's so much out there and there's so much anxiety. I hear so many people talking about anxiety and we're not at our best when we're anxious. We're not contributing. We're not creating. We're not operating at our best. We are anxious living with all this. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to ease my own and in the process, help others with theirs as well. I love that. Thank you for sharing. And yeah, I think especially this week, it's just, it's like on top of our own anxiety that we're dealing with as marketers, as humans going through life and looking back at things, right? But then the darkness of the past week or so, it's just kind of everything is tenfold as tough. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I definitely, I'm going to link to this book and I'm going to read it myself. I'm excited. (laughs) On a similar path or note, I'm curious if you could walk us through whatever you're willing to share, that was kind of a big hurdle. It could be in the marketing world or something that kind of impacted your career trajectory, but negative, positive, something, some kind of hurdle that you worked through. I'm going to talk a little bit about imposter syndrome. Yes. One reason is because I was actually just on a call. We were talking about that this morning. And number two, because similar to a lot of people, once I saw that there was a name for it, I was able to connect with it and then to diagnose it and find a pathway around it. So I tend to be like in my career, I just tend to be very much what you see is what you get. I can be blunt. Same. I can be direct. And it's never out of trying to use it as a weapon. It's really just born from my own impatience. Like if someone is talking and talking and talking, I'm going to stop listening. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And if I cut you off, it's not because I'm trying to be what I'm just trying to get you to get to the point because I'm, you know, my patience is. (laughs) I'm the same. (laughs) My husband will tell you too. (laughs) I'm like, okay, let's get to the point. (laughs) And then, you know, there's a corporate speak. There's a way to do corporate speak. And I just don't have that gene sometimes. You're just on the call a couple of weeks ago at my company and my boss Thankfully, he just kind of attributed it to my being from New York. And I was like, okay, thank you. That's that's totally fine. But so I think that having this imposter syndrome that I didn't look like everyone else, I didn't act like everyone else, I didn't speak like everyone else. Does that really mean that I deserve to be here? Right. Because I remember I was at another like a global financial company and all the women wore beige nail polish. And I remember being in my getting my manicure done and saying, I want beige nail polish. But I really wanted to wear fucking rag nail polish. Yeah. <laughs> That's another book. It's in my how to fuck did I get here book. And I you love know, that. my hair was straight and I really wanted to wear my hair curly. So, you know, it was just yeah. having that imposter syndrome about the fact that I didn't look sound and act like everyone else. Did, I, did yeah. that mean that I really didn't deserve to be here and really being able to overcome that? I love that. Thank you for sharing. It's personally that resonates with me because I've gone through similar chats when I have um, like group coaching calls or any kind of things like that with groups where I love women's groups and organizations where you can just have raw conversations like this. Yeah. And it that came up where I feel the same, like you have this kind of vision of a successful woman leader, right? Or a CMO, let's say. And it's really, to me, it's like I see myself and then this CMO is so far away because I'm not, I'm not polished. I'm much more casual. I curse as well. Like I just, 
I'm not, I'm rough around the edges and I'm, I'm, I say it as it is like, I'm not this, I don't have, I love what you wrote. I wrote that down. The corporate speak gene. I do not have that either. I'm very (laughs) casual and say it like it is. Right. So it's, I think we just have to embrace that as our own corporate vision. Right. And that's, that is what being corporate leader will be for us and making it our own. And wear the red nail polish. <laughs> and I do. And the last time I got my nails done, I did one hand red and one hand black. So <laughs> love it. That's so cool. Yeah. This Thank is... you for sharing. Absolutely. I wonder, is there anything as you, we, we talk through this and things that you've learned, we kind of went in a few different directions in a great way. What would you tell young Deidre just starting out in marketing, switching from accounting like that you know now that you would tell her to just kickstart things and yeah, what knowledge, what wisdom would you share? I would tell her, always remember there's more than one way to do marketing. There's no just one way, right? There's a million different ways to skin a cat. And this is how I really started to embrace, you know, that idea of the art and science of marketing because it allows that creativity to be a known input right? It's like, okay, yeah. yes, we do need creativity. That is, That should be a known input. So I would tell her that. Just remember that. There's more than one way to do marketing. So. Love that. Thank you. And last kind of note too, are there any favorite tools or books in addition to your own or podcasts that are top of mind for you and you're just living for? Okay. So there's a book and a podcast. So I really like, I'm reading now 10X is easier than 2X. I can't think of the author on hand, but I'm loving it so much. I have the Audible version. I bought the hardcover version. I bought the accompanying workbook to go with the the, the hardcover version. And my my son is second year in college up in Rochester. And I sent him a copy of the book and the workbook as well. So I'm really loving that. Yeah. That was recommended to me by someone I talked to um, a few weeks ago. Awesome. There's a woman that runs a, it's called the Life Coach School. Yes. I forgot her name. She's blonde, right? Yes. And Southern. Yes. 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 I know who you're talking about. Yes. I've listened to her podcasts. Yes. Yes. I love the things that she talks about because she does talk about empowering women and she's not afraid to say, yeah, I love money. Yeah. So what? Right. And mm-hmm. you've always been taught not to talk about money, shy away from talking about money, don't negotiate. But she puts it out there. She gives, yes. I think, very actionable tips um, for how to, to how Brooke to Castillo. That. That's her name. Yes. Brooke Castillo. I just looked it up. I cheated. Yeah. yeah. She's yeah. very raw. And yes. just, this is this is how it is and transparent. I love that. Yes. Yeah. Me too. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because I used to listen to her podcast a lot. I haven't in a while. I need to circle back, but I'm not looking to be a life coach, but it was still, it was just great insight. It was like therapy listening to her show. Very, very like eye-opening. Exactly. Like when you asked me, when you said that you were, you know, you you like the fact that I'm creating and kind of putting stuff out there. Yeah. She has an episode too about creating versus consuming. And, you know, I even talked to my kids about that. I have a 13-year-old and my 19-year-old and my 13-year-old, I talked to him about, yeah, it's great to watch videos and stuff, but, you know, get out there and create your own stuff. And he's actually yes. writing his own book right now. And I'm like, great. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Oh, I, I got goosebumps because it's like mother like kids, right? You lead by example. Now they want to yeah. create too. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. 
Amazing. So. Thank you for sharing. I'm going to put links to all of these in show notes for okay. sure. Good, good, good. And I have, I'm definitely going to read all of these myself and get back to Brooke Castillo. So amazing. Thank you so much for joining. It's been so great chatting with you. Definitely. I'm on your wait list for when you start taking patience (laughs) (laughs) and I'm excited for your 25th book. Tams are bullshit (laughs) and keep creating and putting out there. And it's, I've loved our conversation. So thanks for joining. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And thank you everyone for listening. If you like the conversation, which I feel like you had to, cause she's great. Just share, like review. It all helps us just get more, more reach and get more, more women out there. So thanks everyone. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye.